Well, I'm delighted to welcome you all today. We're here today to discuss three themes along sustainability agenda, SAF and its place in the decarbonisation journey, partnerships and how they can impact our decarbonisation journey, and how we can influence together government policy to better support this decarbonisation agenda. Today, I'm more than delighted to welcome Vanessa Hudson, who's the group CFO of Qantas since 2019. Vanessa oversees financial planning and analysis, treasury, procurement and investor relations. With the onset of COVID, obviously, Vanessa has had a pivotal role in navigating the enormous impact of what has been an unprecedented crisis for global aviation on the national carrier's balance sheet. This has included equity raising, tapping debt markets, and an increasing focus on recovery, thankfully, as domestic travel normalizes. Alongside Vanessa, I'm equally excited to welcome Neve Staunton today. Neve was appointed to Senior Vice President of Treasury role in February 21 at BP and is responsible for managing BP's group liquidity, delivering financing and risk management solutions across the business, and the development of a long-term sustainable financing strategy to support BP's reInvent agenda. So we're here today and grateful for their generosity with their time. So I'm going to start this morning with Neve Staunton. And Neve, no one can argue that the required cuts in carbon emissions will require transformational changes in energy. I understand you've many pilot schemes underway, including one at Humber, to explore how BP might provide energy in the future. Just how established do you feel the company's transformation plans are at this point? Rosemary, thanks very much. Great to be here. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all. And look, you're right. You know, it's going to take transformational changes. As our CEO likes to say, we're in action and we're leaning into the transition. We've got some great examples of some of the schemes that we have underway in order to help us achieve that energy transition. Net Zero T-Side is a good example. Last week, we also announced we're taking a 40% stake in operatorship in Australia's Asian Renewable Energy Hub. Uh, which has the potential to be one of the world's largest renewables and green energy hubs. But if I just take a step back, what are we trying to do? So in 2020, BP set out a new strategy, purpose and ambition. And the strategy is to pivot from an IOC, an international oil company, to an IEC, an integrated energy company. So it's all about providing energy solutions to customers. Our purpose is to reimagine energy for the world and our ambition is as many you know here uh, on, we're listening to the call we have an ambition to get to net zero by 2050 or sooner and to help the world get to net zero so that was in 2020 if we look at sort of how established our transformation pathway is at this point earlier this year we provided an update to that strategy giving more details on in particular the five growth engines that we see driving our strategy convenience EV charging, renewables, hydrogen, and importantly for this audience, bioenergy. These are businesses where we aim to grow earnings from about one and a half billion today to nine to 10 billion by 2030. And for bioenergy, that for us means deepening investments in biofuels and biogas. We hope to grow our EBITDA to $2 billion by 2030, half from production and half from biogas and other trading opportunities. And our aim is to supply 20% of global SAF demand by 2030. But it's not about moving from oil and gas to renewables. Sometimes people think about the energy transition as going from the bad stuff to the good stuff. 
Our aim is to deliver resilient hydrocarbons to provide energy security today, ever more important in the world that we're living in, but at the same time, investing at scale to accelerate the energy system of the future. And that's why now more than ever, we see the need for an integrated energy company, the kind that could build the the, the hubs that you know you referenced in your in your opening, but one of the few companies we believe who has the scale and expertise to navigate these complex markets and help manage these increasingly interconnected energy systems. And sustainable aviation fuel fits into our transition growth engines. And for us, it's a great example of what we mean by integration. Okay, super. Thanks, Neve. And you know, I suppose. Looking at the IATA pathway specifically, the plan is that, you know, with appropriate government policy, SAF production will reach 2% of total fuel requirement by 2025. It's a fairly material increase from where we are today. So listening to the IATA AGM yesterday, we're at 125 million litres currently annually, and that needs to get to 5 billion. So how do you think we can reach that target? Huge leaps that we have to make. And I think one of the other numbers that we have is that, you know, the production needs to increase from around 200,000 tonnes a year at the moment to around 300 million tonnes by 2050. How do we do that? Great question. Um, in our view, you kind of have to go through the entire value chain. If I think about how we're contributing and where we're looking to play a role, there's uh, there's five areas so firstly, feedstock supply. This is the biggest issue for sustainable aviation fuel today. And um, we're working with our trading organization to source sustainable supply. And we recently entered into a, uh, a purchase agreement with New Seat for a non-food cover crop that farmers can grow between crops. We really do need to boost the supply of, of feedstock. That's point one. Point two, production capacity. We have five biosaf projects as part of our plans, including converting up to two of our refineries to biorefineries. And we recently announced that we're underway with our refinery in Lingen to develop SAF. These SAF projects are, are co-located with our refineries. They leverage existing infrastructure, logistics, trading scale, and our customer relationships. I think for us, it's not about starting from scratch. It's about building on the existing infrastructure that exists and to support what is already uh, doable and achievable. Point three is distribution networks. So we're leveraging AirBP, which already has a presence in 700 airports in, in 50 countries. And our customers are more than 250 passenger airlines and more than 50 cargo carriers. So again, leveraging on, on our established distribution networks. Technology is going to be really important. We're looking at many different technologies, whether that's turning biodegradable muni waste into fuel, exploring SAF production from hydrogen, but scaling multiple SAF technologies and making them economic is going to be extremely important. And then finally, and, and critically, and delighted to be on this call with Vanessa, but obviously customer demand is also important. So we're looking uh, and entering into strategic collaboration deals with our customers from SAF, including Qantas and others. So those are the five areas where we're looking to try and support this enormous growth need that we have ahead of us. Great. Thanks, Neve. And that's you know, a fairly clear path to increasing production and supply. And Vanessa, I might bring you in then. Can you talk us through you know, how Qantas see your pathway to increasing your utilisation over the coming years? So you know, I understand you do have an agreement uh, with BP already. Yeah, thanks, uh, Rosemary, and, and thanks, Neve. We agree with Neve's sentiments there about the importance of sustainable aviation fuel 
as a critical part of aviation decarbonising in the interim, but also in the long term. We've been pretty clear as Qantas uh, in terms of setting targets for ourselves, uh, both um, 2030 targets and also net zero goal by 2050. And for us to achieve that, we have matched to that target uplifting 10% sustainable aviation fuel across our networks by 2030 and then that would lift to 60% by by 2050. So, And we would like to make that more if we could. So we do definitely see that sustainable aviation fuel is going to be a key part of that. And what we are seeing across the globe is the supply of sustainable aviation fuel is increasing, particularly in Europe in the United Kingdom and also the United States where governments and industry have been working together to really find ways of of providing the scale and the volume and the commercials to bring sustainable aviation fuel to the airports and, and also uplifting on aircraft. So for us, it's really important that we have partners like BP to work with. We are uplifting sustainable aviation fuel currently with BP out of Heathrow. That represents currently 15% of our fuel that we're picking up from Heathrow is now sustainable aviation fuel and we're really proud of that. But we are also looking to other jurisdictions, uh, particularly as well uh, the US, where we'll be uh, lifting our sustainable aviation fuel very shortly across other parts of our network. So we're the first Australian airline to not only commit to sustainable aviation fuel, but to be actively using it across our network. And we're really proud of that. I would agree with that sentiment. 15% uh, of your fuel from Heathrow is no mean achievement, you know. Vanessa, you've recently also announced, you know, your fleet renewal plans. What impact will that have on your overall emissions target? Well, our targets are going to be achieved through four ways. One uh, being uh, the use of sustainable aviation fuel, but also technology and and new aircraft technology is going to be another key part in us achieving our interim and our long-term targets. So what we've seen with new aircraft and new engine technology is providing all of our network and all of our fleets with the ability to be more efficient and reduce emissions. So the announcements that were made recently of acquiring the A220 Airbus fleet and also the Airbus 320neo family to replace our 717 fleet and also to over time retire our 737 fleet will substantially reduce our, our emissions by up to 20% on our 717. So technology and new engine technology is going to be a key part of that, but it won't get us there alone. Sustainable aviation fuel is a key part of that. Finding ways of reducing and driving efficiency through operation and and flight planning, but also uh, the role of, of carbon offsetting is also going to be a very important part of us achieving our targets in 2030. Great, thanks. It's so true that these decarbonisation challenges continue to be the most significant now that we're through the pandemic for the next decade and beyond. But, you know, I really believe each industry participant has a significant part to play in taking responsibility for achieving the targets. How important are your partnerships in developing innovative solutions? You know, is it a new way to contemplate relationships given, I suppose, the collective impact of not achieving the targets? 
Uh, so, Vanessa, maybe I'll start with you first and then go to Neve. Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think that at the success of, of decarbonising aviation, uh, central to that is going to be partnerships. We often talk about that as being a coalition of aligned organisation on a pathway and in a journey together to, to get there is going to be what uh, success is, is made from. And those partnerships are going to be the airline community, uh, the private sector, including partners like BP. We think the government plays an incredibly important role, as does airports as well. So we do think that it is a really critical part on that journey. And we look to as well what has occurred in the United Kingdom. Uh, and They have a Jet Zero Council that has been formed of both public and private representatives to to help develop the right policies and also to help achieve uh, not just those policies but also in an accelerated time frame. So we actually really do believe that 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 kind of partnership approach is going to be central to success. Yeah I couldn't agree more with what Vanessa just said. You know when you're undertaking these kind of huge scale and, and, and transformation partnerships are absolutely key and and even if we look back historically, you know, as a as an oil and gas company, traditionally we we you know we have a history of partnering with governments and with nations and with partners to develop these projects at scale. But here the imperative is even more important. We have such a collective ambition. You know what Vanessa and Qantas are trying to do is the same as what we're trying to do, which is to lower our emissions, to become more sustainable, and to ensure that we can achieve net zero by 2050. These partnerships have a multitude of, of purposes and benefits. They, you know, allow us to tailor our solutions and our investments to what our customers really need. They help provide us with certainty of demand, which helps us with our investment decisions. They enable us to learn from each other and to build on each other's strengths, capabilities and expertise. And I agree with Vanessa that the partnerships will come from a range of sources, whether that's other energy providers where we partner with you know, we're partnering with ENBW on offshore wind, for example, whether that is through the likes of Qantas. Qantas and BP have been in a fuel supply relationship for almost 100 years. You know, both BP Air and Qantas have been in Australia for over 100 years. You know, we're one of Qantas's largest fuel supplies suppliers globally, and it makes sense that we should be focusing collectively on this big challenge that we have ahead of us and there are also other things that we partner on with Qantas, so whether that's a loyalty program that we have with them. But these, these partnerships, I agree with Vanessa, they go beyond the private sector. We do need the support of governments. We need the support of, of industry groups. We need the support of, of the broader society if we are going to deliver on these targets that we have collectively set. Thanks, Neve. And Vanessa, interesting to hear you talk about the Jet Zero Council. Uh, the women at ISTAT Network were delighted to hear actually from Emma Gilthorpe, who's the CEO of the Jet Zero Council, at our event in Edinburgh last September. Um, and I agree that's one of the pioneering partnerships between government and industry that we should look potentially to replicate in other, uh, in other parts of the world. So, you know, our third team theme today, which you've already touched on, is government support. And, and you know, Neve, you meant, mentioned certainty of demand. I do think we need strong frameworks for attracting capital investment to the kind of infrastructure required. Now, we are seeing industry bodies like IATA, AWG and other smaller alliances 
Council, focusing on ensuring that coherent policies are implemented to support cost-effective and sustainable improvements. But Vanessa, how do Qantas approach the policy discussion locally? And so ideally, what sort of frameworks and incentives would deliver the most benefit from your perspective? You know, how can we align and amplify our lobbying to ensure consistency then for, you know, across all of the regions? I think that it's really important starting point in terms of talking about, you know, the public benefit of setting up a new industry like sustainable aviation uh, fuel for Australia is first and foremost that we believe that this is a strategic national benefit for Australia. If you think about our landmass, you think about our rich natural resources, we believe that Australia, you know, could be a world leader in this because, as Neve said earlier, one of the challenges for an industry like sustainable aviation fuel is the supply of feedstock. Uh, and we think that Australia has a great opportunity uh, to recognise the feedstock sources that we have as a nation uh, and use that to develop an industry here in Australia and the second thing on that, that, you know, the national benefit and what we're looking globally now with the geopolitical uncertainty that exists is the importance of fuel security. Uh, and we think that increasingly and over time that will become a very important part of national policy and think it's very important for a country like Australia who is geographically isolated from the world. International long-haul travel is what connects Australia to the world and also domestic airline travel is what connects Australia uh, within our own boundaries. So we we actually think that there is an incredibly mutually inclusive uh, value that is going to come from industry and government agreeing on this as being a critical part of of our national infrastructure, but also the economics. There's, There's a real economic benefit that will come. We believe that an industry such as sustainable aviation fuel for Australia could create more than 7,500 jobs by 2030 and potentially it would contribute to, you know, national GDP of upwards of $2.8 billion. Uh, And that's because we are a consumer of sustainable aviation fuel and we would much prefer to see those dollars stay within Australia to support a local industry than what he's currently doing where a lot of that um, goes overseas. So we think that there is this deep aligned objectives, both from an aviation point of view, but also from a national interest perspective. And I think when you have aligned objectives, it actually makes the conversation a lot more constructive and also hopefully we will find the pathway to accelerate in time. That sounds definitely like a constructive conversation, uh, Vanessa. Neve, turning to you, what government frameworks, I suppose, would improve BP's ability to provide adequate supply to meet demand? And, you know, you've talked about certainty of demand. What gives you that sort of infrastructure to provide the demand that, you know, will enable your capital investment? We need the support of governments. We need supportive policies. I think SAF mandates like Refuel EU that make it compulsory for suppliers to blend SAF into jet fuels. These things obviously help us, you know, in terms of the certainty around supply. But I think Vanessa spoke so convincingly and so eloquently about the the benefits that that you can get from these kind of integrated approaches and from seeing this as a 
you know, as a, as a broader solution. I think, you know, just listening to, to Vanessa talking about Australia there, it, it really resonates with us. And I fully support what she's saying around the, you know, that there are economic benefits or benefits around energy security, you know, jobs, et cetera. You know, I think, you know, we, we announced, as I said last week, that we're taking this, uh, you know, operatorship and stake in, in RA, Australia's Asian Renewable Energy Hub, you know, just to give you a sense of how this works, you know, we are developing onshore wind, solar operations, total generating capacity of up to 26 gigawatts. That's about a third of all electricity generated on Australia in 2020. And that power is going to be used. Uh, it's going to produce around 1.6 million tons of green hydrogen or 9 million tons of green ammonia per year. That can be used in Australia and beyond to help decarbonize industries like mining, shipping, steel. And the excess renewable power is supplied to local customers. And just to give you a sense of the scale of what you can achieve if you have that kind of joined up approach, RA expects to abate around 17 million tonnes of carbon per year. And that will, as, as Vanessa says, these kind of things will bring jobs to the region. It has an economic benefit. It will provide energy security. And the export is also beneficial to the local economy. So I think what we are also hoping for is that understanding of the mutual benefits of this transition and that we hope to see more frameworks put in place that support this. And for us also, you hear talk of blended capital, the notion that we need public and private capital to come into the transition. And that that's important for us as well. Historically, we had a lot of support from, from governments who were looking to develop their local energy infrastructure and, and create energy production. But there is so much private capital out there as well that wants to invest in the transition. And so for us, the mechanisms to bring all of those together and the support from the governments globally, we think will be critical to ensuring that we can not just deliver on our ambitions, but that we can bring the capital in that wants to support these uh, initiatives and that we can achieve our, our, our aim, not just of getting ourselves to net zero, but helping the planet get to net zero as well. So thanks, Vanessa, for giving such a, you know, a, a great example. And, and we see it very much the same. Great. Thanks, Neve. And uh, last one for me for you is, do you feel there's a, a positive development for other en energy manufacturers to align without impacting competition? Is there an opportunity here for, for greater alignment across your whole industry? I'll jump in on that. Look, from, from our perspective, you know, net zero is not a competition. It's a problem we need to solve collectively. There are some challenges that we need to get on top of, whether that is supply of feedstock and whether that is ensuring that we have the stability of demand to make sure that we're investing in the right places. But essentially, this is a problem that we all need to solve collectively. And the more alignment that you can get, the better the outcome is going to be for everybody. The energy transition is incredibly complex. The more clarity that we can get, the more critical mass we can get around whether that's technologies or disclosures or investment targets and focus, the more likely we are to be able to move forward in a way that allows us to build and drive momentum. Great. Thanks, Neve. Listen, I'm deeply grateful to you both for, for taking the time to share your insights today and for putting forward such convincing arguments. As, as Neve has said, Vanessa, I think the uh, hopefully the Australian government are listening to you today. So to conclude, once again, thanks for joining us today. Really hope you enjoyed our podcast. 
And we'd love to hear your feedback at the following email address, istat at istat.org. Love to hear what you thought of today's agenda. We'd equally be interested to hear of further themes that you'd like explored and especially interested to hear if you'd like to participate in one of our recordings. Thank you.